Major Lindsay in Africa presents Between the Legal Lines, a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success. Welcome to Between the Legal Lines. My name is Andrea Bricka and I am your host. This podcast is a series of monthly interviews where we explore how women who happen to also be both executives and lawyers navigate the boundaries often placed upon them due to their roles and their demographic. These women have found success despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month we hear a new story from a different woman about what that is like. Joining me today is Bernadette Chala, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Arbonne. Bernadette, welcome to Between the Legal Lines, and thank you for joining me today. Please tell us who you are, about your current role, and how you got there. Hello, Andrea. Yes, this is Bernadette Chala. I am an attorney. I've been practicing for over two decades here in California. Uh, My current role, as you stated, is chief legal officer and in-house counsel role, which is different from practicing at a law firm. And I came to the in-house role um, after private practice in a big law firm. Um, I was pitching to clients and they, instead of giving me business, invited me to found their first legal department and be their general counsel. Uh, which I did. And we took that company through a very strategic acquisition. And uh, Arbonne, my current company, tapped me from there. And I did the same thing here at Arbonne and converted the company to a B company. And so I've been at Arbonne, it'll be 10 years uh, in January. So what challenges and opportunities do you face as a general counsel for a B or benefit corporation? Well, I think it's a unique uh, entity uh, today. Most companies, as you know, are for-profit, either an S corporation or a C corporation. Uh, People are familiar with what that means. Or they're a nonprofit, mission-based company, meaning, of course, they're like a charity or something akin to a charity and give away all of their funds. A B company essentially has a triple bottom line. We are still a for-profit and our tax status has not changed. Uh, But in addition to profit, we support people and planet. And we call that a triple bottom line. Instead of being mission-based, we are purpose-based. And we have a purpose um, and we have a stated purpose filed with the state of Delaware. And we are a Delaware B company uh, to support and empower people through healthy, innovative products. And uh, we do report on our purpose every year, and that report is public. Are there other opportunities that you think go along with that? Is it the idea that people are interested in B Corps? Have you seen an increase in that? Uh, That's a good question. People, consumers are very interested in knowing where their money goes. Uh, Today, that's, we have seen a significant shift across consumer product companies 
where the consumer understands when they make a choice and give their money to a company in exchange for their product, they are ratifying what that company stands for and ratifying how that company operates. And so uh, the consumer is much more savvy about that than perhaps uh, what has been uh, traditionally the case. So the consumer is definitely aware, uh, more aware of what a B company is and that there is some commitment on our part to fulfill our triple bottom line and that we have to be accountable to that. And that if they find out uh, or look online for information about us, they will find that information. And it is on our website. Um, People can find it fairly easily. Um, There are challenges because of course we are a for-profit company and maintaining profitability is critical or we can't do what we do. Uh, But the rewards are, are, um, are, I can't understate the the rewards enough. For example, uh, paying a living wage. Of course, we pay minimum wage. Everybody does. But a living wage, as defined by some of our best-in-class B company trackers, is slightly higher. Um, and so I'm very proud of the fact that the company decided um, that we would lift our minimum wage workforce to a living wage workforce um, as part of our commitment to people. Um, and um, as part of our commitment to planet, we also have given people every day, every year, excuse me, an additional day off to reconnect to nature and do something that supports uh, the planet. So things like that, when, when I see the reaction of my own team and other employees about what this means for them um, and what it means to work for a company that doesn't just talk about empty platitudes, but directly um, holds itself accountable to taking action uh, really means a lot. Um, I don't want to overstate it. Again, we're not a charity. However, at the same time, we're doing things we don't have to do. And we're doing things that don't directly impact profitability. But it resonates, absolutely resonates with our customer base, our employee base. And frankly, our people are who what matters the most anyway. So turning back to your actual career a little bit, has there been any one person that's been particularly helpful in your career? You know, um, for me, I always have a team mentality and um, I know, you, you know, and I try to take that to my own team, uh, player coach mentality. And and that means that means there are different people who support you um, throughout your career. I couldn't say there is any single person who has stood out, but in phases of my career, I have always been appreciative and humbled by um, others who have stepped forward to help um, and grateful. And I I try to do the same. Um, We try to nurture talent uh, on my team. And I've been, uh, through my career, uh, looking at other other model companies and what they do for talent incubation has been something I've been challenged with in the past and continue to challenge myself with today. It, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time, but the rewards, uh, again, are impressive. Speaking of team, could you talk to us a little bit about the interaction you see between the general counsel and other executive team members, such as the CFO, the CHRO, Where do those relationships intersect and what do you think is the most effective approach to that interaction? 
Well, again, going back to that team mentality, particularly for attorneys who come through the big law firm uh, track, uh, in some law firms, it's eat what you kill and you don't share the wealth. Uh, however, when you're in-house and you are the client, everybody has to work together and it is very much supporting each other. Um I'm a great subscriber to Ben Heineman Jr.'s thoughts on how the CFO and general counsel can be the corporate states people and have the corporate states person mentality as they interact with others in the company. Um, and I think I think it, he states very well um, um, how and, and, and for those who don't know, he was the general counsel at um at um, General Electric under Jack Welch and did a lot to build and define what a functioning legal department should look like. Uh, now, now it's also, his thoughts are also a product of his time, of course. However, I think many of them resonate today. As the corporate statesperson, sometimes you are the lone voice in the room. Um, sometimes your partnership with the CFO is critical for back office function and, and critical for the company's success, but not visible to others. And the general counsel has to be comfortable with success that isn't necessarily visible to others. Uh, in particular, success that maybe isn't understandable even by others working at the company. And that is also different from what you see at a law firm for those in private practice. Um, however, the power of your role and understanding how you add value and where the best use of resources are to add value, I think, I think becomes critical. And that includes a partnership. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about it. Can we call uh, the people we work with family? Are they really a family? I'm more of the subscriber going back to that team mentality. Um, I can't pick my family. And maybe I have family members who have serious issues. Um, well, when you play on a team, you help your team members. You choose your team members. If somebody's not pulling their weight, the team steps in. You find out why. You challenge them. You try to help. You try to coach. Maybe you need to change the team. You know, maybe your your season, as you stated it, the season ends and you didn't get the results you wanted on the scoreboard. Then you regroup and decide what to do next. And you pull the resources together you need to build the right team. Um, but a team supports it, supports each other. You know, even when the team takes a shot and fails, we still cheer. And maybe families aren't quite the same way. So I've always encouraged, um, and frankly, it's work, right? We, we have to remember it's a J-O-B for a lot of people, but if they're performing, that's okay. Um, and so that kind of mentality of we support each other because we're team one, we're on one team, and we succeed together and we fail together, um, I think goes a long way to establishing um, a, a highly functioning team that demonstrates executional excellence. So extrapolating that out a little bit to what we've just gone through with COVID, what have you, and maybe even in turn, your leadership and team and your legal department team, what have you learned about leadership from the COVID crisis? Um, in terms of COVID, I think, I think that was a learning for, for everybody, right? Um, you know, a lot of people say times of crisis create character, but I believe crisis reveals character. Um, if you haven't prepared for a crisis, at least in the back of your mind, if you don't have a playbook, then when you're sitting in the head of legal chair, you maybe aren't doing something right. Um, you have to be ready 
when you're the general counsel, whether it's COVID, whether it's a class action lawsuit that wants to shut the company down, whether it's a regulatory agency that's saying your entire business model is uh, a problem for some reason, uh, the general counsel has to be prepared for that. Um, and so, so you have to, now, now we don't, you know, I say that understanding that all of us, of course, we have a crystal ball, a magic wand and an invisible cloak that will lead <laughs> us to success. Right. Um, so, so we, that means we have to know where the ball is going to be, um, with all the tools at our disposal. And we're always under-resourced. We never have the perfect team. There's always a gap and we still have to plan accordingly and communicate and do the research and make sure we're meeting deadlines tactically, but also strategically and doing our job to keep the bigger picture in mind and directing our teams, coaching them, pointing them in a better direction, you know, moving the pieces around, always driving for continuous improvement and what I call executional excellence. We can start a lot of projects. We can do a lot of work. Have we finished? Have we executed? And if a project, not all, not every project should be finished, then we have to have finality and end the project. But do we execute and do we execute with excellence? And that's what we drive towards. But that includes anticipating crises like COVID. Now, of course, I don't mean knowing a pandemic is coming, but understanding what's going to happen and having a plan if there are business shutdown issues um, that have to be thought through. Where are the insurance policies? Who has them? Why, why are they kept that way? How, how can we ease communication? Now at Arbonne, we had always been encouraged to work in innovative ways. And as a leader, and this comes from my law firm days, as long as the job is getting done, and I know you're executing with excellence, it doesn't necessarily matter where that takes place. And so I think I was luckier than others in that my team had a functioning remote work, on-site work model that we were comfortable with. Now, none of us, including myself, anticipated what COVID would look like and what it still continues to be. But at the same time, we were able to pivot um, and pivot in a way that perhaps had less impact than it otherwise would have. And we're also able to support the business in terms of crisis planning, um, insurance policy work, vendor planning um, in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to if we hadn't already thought of some of these issues. What, if anything, do you wish that you were freer to say or do at work? And if there is anything, why can't you? Um, you know, this goes back to the role of the general counsel as the corporate statesperson. For better or for worse, you have the title. And for better or for worse, you're held to a higher standard. Uh, professionals are held to a higher standard. It's not just attorneys. And when you're in a law firm, you're also the, the fungible um, revenue generator. And so that comes with positives and negatives. In a corporate environment, People aren't used to working with attorneys. They don't know what you do. They don't understand even why your role exists, perhaps. And so there is a certain uh, posture as a professional, um, I feel anyway, that many attorneys um, put on um, that, that is um, approachable but professional. Um, and in other words, you're never exactly free to be yourself. Now, that's true for many employees because we all have to work together. 
Um, I might say things in my own home. I wouldn't say anywhere in public just because um, I have to work together with people and want to have a collaborative work environment based on trust. And if um, we all have um, personal biases and beliefs, and so at work, we might all practice um, self-censorship, which in my view is not necessarily a bad thing because we have to work together and get along and trust each other, right? But the attorneys held, in my view, to an even higher standard and has to be mindful that um, things are interpreted against you because you're supposed to know better. You're supposed to know everything, quote, unquote. Um, so, so there is this sense in some ways of self-censorship. And maybe it's not just the legal team, but there are other teams held to standards uh, by the general population uh, in the workplace simply because of the role they hold. A, a CEO, for example. Uh, we, there are plenty of stories in the news where CEOs are considered rogue because they are saying things that maybe with friends on a weekend, nobody would care, but it's in the workplace. And so it now represents the company. It represents something else and something different that potentially applies to employees simply because of your title and role. Uh, and I think leaders forget how visible they are because of their title and role, uh, but for other employees, very visible. And so um, something to, to be mindful of. During your career, what would you say has been stronger, the restraints you place on yourself or restrictions placed upon you by other people? Well, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, as an attorney, when I go into court, when I was in private practice, there were many restrictions placed on me, but that's so the court could function appropriately, right? Even entering a courthouse these days comes with a security check and um, a security screening. Um, and so restrictions like that, we might say are still a restriction, but we might also accept as a necessary restriction. Um, so, so I think it runs all the way from A to Z in terms of restraints or restrictions. I don't know that one has been stronger than the other. Like I, like I said, when you're at work, that's different from when you're not at work. And you may be um, unwittingly, again, because of your title or your role, an ambassador for the company when you're at work. And what you say can impute the company's view accidentally, maybe not intentionally, of course. Um, and so and so those are restraints we live with because it comes with the territory. I don't know that one's stronger than the other. I do know there are plenty of restraints and plenty of ways we get restricted, um, whether it's by ourselves or by a third party. So Data continues to show a gender pay gap for most legal roles, particularly the GC role. Do you have any thoughts on how we could close that gap going forward and how we get more women into the general counsel or chief legal officer seats? You know, I'm asked that all the time. Um, and so for me, there, are, there is a short answer and there, of course, is a long answer. The, the problem is there isn't agreement on how we get there, right? Uh, but, but that's because the answer isn't black and white. People are complex creatures. Um, and so we can't easily put things into neat categories, especially when it um, involves inherent implicit bias um, for roles. I might enter a room and say something that if a man with my title in a suit said it wouldn't cause an eye to blink, but because I said it, and maybe I'm not wearing a suit, 
people might roll their eyes or think, well, that's mean. Why aren't you nicer? Um, you know, I might say, we need to get this idea moving now, people. Let's go. Uh, which would be a sign of leadership if a man said it who was wearing a suit. But if I'm, if it's casual Friday and I'm in jeans and I say it, people might laugh. Um, why? Why is that? I mean, the, the comment is actually fairly innocuous, but is directive and, and uh, demonstrating we have a project we need to execute. Um, so, so for me, what I have seen successful, what companies have done is remove on resumes um, what, what indicates any sign of gender that includes race, that includes any other protected class. Um, and so the person looking at the resume has to assess based on the qualities only, the talent only, if this is someone they should meet with. And then when they meet with that individual, they get to decide uh, do they still fit the role in your view? Why or why not? And maybe it will raise issues about, well, I just don't see them in the role. Well, why is that? On paper, they look good, right? So I have seen that work where people are suddenly brought brought short with, um, oh my gosh, this isn't my idea of this role. And understanding, suddenly having the self-awareness, it's because um, the individual's in a protected class. But that inherently gets more people in the door just by screening out things like gender, again, race, or other protected class. Um, I have actually seen that work. So uh, those are those are my thoughts going forward. Um, the pay gap is a serious concern, of course, um, because, um, you know, anybody in a current role, male or female, might understand, well, if I leave tomorrow, they would hire my replacement at a 10% increase, perhaps, um, just because maybe I've been in my role for 20 years, um, which I personally haven't. But, but we see where people are in roles for a long time, their pay doesn't increase as much as if they leave frequently. Um, so, so what does that tell us? And why are people who aren't changing roles rewarded less? Shouldn't we reward those people more? So there are many things at play. Um, I will say it continues to be unfortunate and it continues to be something we should all focus on, particularly the, the pay gap. What you said is very true. I mean, as a, a recruiter, you do see that, right? I mean, the people that move around more tend to increase their compensation. Do you think there's anything to the general idea? I know that's a little bit of implicit bias too, right? But that women maybe are a little more risk adverse and so don't make those moves as often, which then directly correlates to their comp. Do you have any thoughts on that? My thought is if, if women are risk adverse, it's because people put them there. It's not because women are risk averse. Um, I still continue to, to see uh, the opinion of, and I'll get feedback. Oh, you aren't what, oh, you're a fun, you're a real general counsel. We like you. Oh, well, what's a fake general counsel? Is it the high heels? What's causing you to think I'm fake? Um, and then you met me and we worked together and you understood I'm, I'm, a, I'm a serious value add with a strategy and you like that. And oh my gosh, I'm a quote unquote, a real general counsel. How exciting. Um, that unfortunately happens too often still. I also, you know, we have a lot of conversations as a culture about these issues. Um, for some reason, we continue to think conversations equate with action and it doesn't. Um, 
And so we have to stop talking and start doing. I've been and um, in private practice, had many clients who had a lot of talk to offer. But when it came down to an action plan, everybody looked the other way. Um, well, there's the issue right there. Why, why, why are we so averse to taking action? Um, and, and I would encourage anyone to leverage themselves and leverage their own talent. And if you're not getting paid right, that's when you absolutely you need to make a change. I like that. Conversation does not equate to action. That's excellent. Um, in closing, a final question for you. What advice would you offer to other ambitious women about workplace behavior? I always, you know, I, I also get that a lot from, from women. Um, frankly, ambitious or otherwise, I get it from men often too advice, counsel, what would I say to them, especially people just starting out? And I always say the same two things. Number one, be yourself. Always be yourself. If that's not working, it's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. Now that's hard, right? Because that might mean you're not in the right place and you have to make a change. That's okay. You need to be in the right place. You need to be yourself. If you think making a change to find the right fit is hard, imagine staying somewhere where you can't be yourself. That's much harder. And frankly, more damaging. Be yourself. And number two, and I tell women this all the time, actually, and I I get this question from women more, trust your instincts. I've heard, frankly, too many times, well, it felt wrong to me, but... Trust your instincts. You're smarter than you're giving yourself credit for. That one does concern me because I have, again, I I have gotten that one from women far more than men. Don't doubt yourself. You've got this. Trust yourself. Be yourself and trust yourself. You know what you're doing. And it's okay to speak up and say things like, you know what, I like how this, I like how we're talking, but I need to do some more research. Or, you know what, I think that's right, but I need to confirm for you. And if the feed, what's the feedback going to be? You need to confirm that? Yes, I need to confirm this. Nothing wrong with that. Well, you need to look into it again? Absolutely. I need to go back and look at this again, and I will have an answer for you. Nothing wrong with that. I see a lot of hesitation in terms of, well, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. No one's saying you have to. It's okay to say, I've seen a lot of yeses on this one. I want to confirm that for you. No problem. And now you've given a yes and you look great and you're going to go back and confirm it. And if it's a no, you can say, you know, I have seen a lot of yeses, but here's a distinct fact or a unique circumstance that makes this one challenging. Let me go over it with you. Nothing wrong with that. That's taking your seat at the table. But you have to trust yourself. And you have to be yourself. Thank you, Bernadette. That's great, great advice everyone should follow. Trust yourself and be yourself. Bernadette, thank you so much. This has been Between the Legal Lines, where you have just heard from Bernadette Chala, CLO and General Counsel at Arbonne. My name is Andrea Bricka from Major Lindsay in Africa. Thank you for listening. 
Join us next time for a new story from another woman successfully operating between the legal lines. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact me at abricka at mlaglobal.com. Thank you for listening. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.